like you to open to the psalm, Psalm 78. Psalms 78 gives us a brief history of God and his people and how they related to each other and the failures and the weaknesses of God's people and the grace and the goodness of God. It's all in a wonderful psalm here, Psalm 78. But I want to begin and really major on the first eight verses of Psalms 78. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing in the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children which should be born, should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Now that is what I want to talk about this morning, about standing steadfast. It's somewhat of a common title, but it's something that we all have to measure ourselves by. Are we standing before the Lord as believers, are we standing steadfast? See, if you're not standing, you're sort of wavering, you're back and forth, you're here and then you're there, or you're sitting or you're lying down. But somebody who is standing is standing upright and can move about and can move forward and whatever the Lord wants them to do. You can do that if you're standing. You can get out of the way fast if you're standing. There is an advantage to standing. But if you're not standing steadfastly with the Lord, you won't stand very long. The word steadfast has to do with being fixed or being established or being secure or being firm. The word is used in a lot of ways, the Hebrew word. But when you're steadfast, you're secure. You're securely fixed. You're firm. You're firmly involved. You're not likely to be thrown off course. Or you'll be tempted. There'll be times you think about things and you'll wonder about this or about what you heard and whether or not you're really where you ought to be if you'll ever be there. I mean, those thoughts come to all of us. But a person who is steadfast in the Lord will make sure that as he examines himself and measures himself by God's standard. He will make sure that his desire is to be like that. And whatever needs to be done to become like that, he will. That kind of person is not likely to fall away, fall back, or move aside, or give up easy. They're not likely to need a lot of help. They're not likely to look for a lot of sympathy. There's just something about a heart that God touches. And you know what I'm saying. There's something about the God experience 
that when the Lord touches a heart, you can use words and try to describe it, but it's nothing like knowing it. And when a heart really gets turned and changed and God gets your direction and you begin to focus, everything takes on a different meaning. Being steadfast has a purpose. It means that you're going to stay put. You're not going to back off. You're not going to cave in. You're not going to compromise. You're going to know in whom you have believed, and you're going to be persuaded that what he's offered, he'll give it, and you're looking for it, and you're waiting for it, and you're pursuing it. This is the kind of person that I think God wants us to be, the kind of person that we should be. We're not just like that because our Scripture tells us that we're all born more or less the opposite of that. Children, for example, the most carnal beings in the world are children. Little kids are carnal. I have a carnal, carnal child living with us in our home right now. I hope he's not terrorizing the nursery. If it is back there, everybody thump his head. He's a cute little fellow, but, you know, they're just wanting attention all the time. He doesn't care if you don't feel good or doesn't care how your day's been. They want whatever they want now. They want a nurse now. They want to eat now. They want a diaper change now. They can't even snap their fingers yet, but they want it now. <laughs> because they're selfish. They're self-serving. And, you know, if left alone... You'll grow up like that. You'll learn a few social things that you couldn't do and you can't do, but you'll still remain that selfish, self-serving, give-me-mine-now type of person. You'll do that spiritually. You'll be taught, especially if the testimony of when you go to church with your parents and you see how they react during the week to all the stuff they hear on Sunday, if they don't live like that's true, that's their testimony to you. And you're going to measure religion by how your parents deal with it. And in that way, we all teach our children. Because you see, our children naturally don't turn to God. The responsibility to turn them to God is us. Not some so-called Sunday school class, but uh, parents. Let's go back to Psalm 78. He said in verse 2, We who know the Lord have been taught... We have heard it. It's been made clear to us. At first, we didn't understand it, but God made it clear to us. And he said, we have learned and we understand. He said, verse 3, which we have heard and known. Then he adds, and our fathers have told us. So these were fathers who did not neglect their responsibility as leaders in the home, as leaders of their family, and especially as leading examples to their children, they didn't neglect their responsibility to point these kids to the same God they had been pointed to. And he goes on to say in verse 4 and verse 5, this is our responsibility to our children, our testimony and our message. We don't have a message if we haven't learned one. If we don't know what we've been hearing, we have no message. If we don't live what we hear, we have no testimony. 
And chances are our children will put those two together and they'll be out of here by the time they're old enough to, to sass and, and leave home. There's two goals in this psalm, but one of the one I've chosen is be steadfast. The other one is to hope in God. If we don't do that ourselves, if we're not steadfast, neither will our children be. If our hope is not in God, our expectancy is not in God, it won't be in our children either because they're going to learn from us. And he says in verse 4, we will not hide the things that God has shown us from our children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. It would seem to me if my generation has been faithful to the one under me, you would be like that. Would you agree? If we have not just preached at you and not just taught you, if we have done our job, then there should be a generation behind us that follows the same thing we follow. The praises of God. They will have seen his strength. They've seen his power in our family. Our hope is in God. Our expectancy is in God. God fulfills that. We get healed. We get blessed. Money comes in. We're taken care of, and, and everything that we preach is working for us. And he said, and the wonderful works that he has done. Now, this is what he then says in verse 5. For he has established... This is what God establishes. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded the fathers that they should make these things known to their children. Now, you would agree with me this morning that I have a responsibility not only to relate to God and to walk with him, but to take the benefits, the fruits, and the learning of all of that walk and impart that to my children as best I know how. As Deuteronomy describes, as we walk along the way, as we sit, and as we eat, we're talking to our children about the Lord. You young folks, it's not wrong for your wrongs or your shortcomings or your weaknesses to be pointed out to you. We're not trying to put you down. We're just trying to let you know that those are traits that have to die. They have to give way to God's strength and power, where you're not like that anymore. And when you're like that, it's our responsibility to tell you about it, isn't it? And then the psychologists come along and ruin the whole thing. Well, you should never tell the children they're failing in school. You should never flunk as kids in school. You should tell them a two plus two can mean whatever his imagination wants it to be. And if he can't spell cat, dog, or... Boy ran, if he can't put all that together, then you should tell him it's okay to put it any way he wants to. See, we want people to be mentally strong, and yet what we have is a generation of mentally weak. We can't communicate. Who would hire them? Most of them can't get a job because of the influence of drugs, because it's a loose, I want to be somebody else and goofy generation. And yet as fathers, in the midst of that, we as Christian fathers, our responsibility is to not only checkmate all of that stuff when we see it in our kids or lack of effort or lack of what, or lazy, whatever we see. God doesn't allow us to do that, does he? 
No. Well, then when we see it in our kids, then we have to deal with it. But we have to make sure that we don't have the same testimony. So we've got a responsibility. If you want to be a daddy, and if you get married, chances are you will be. All those little kids that come along, God requires you, Papa, to be sure that these kids are being made citizens of his kingdom. Rising early and setting up what as long as you have to to teach them the ways of God. And not only talk to them about it, but demonstrate how you live this life. Because this was what he said in Psalm 78. God holds us responsible to impart to our children the light, the understanding that he's given us. At least tell them about it. God will give them the same thing, but God will start with you in teaching these things to your children. And this is the goal in verse 6. This is what we're after, that the generation to come might know. Now, that's you folks sitting out here, you young folks especially, my children, that the generation to come might know that they should arise themselves and declare to their own children that they might learn, verse 7, to set their hope in God. That's almost a sermon because there's not many people that do. There's a few that do, of course, that people might set their expectancy in God instead of the world system or some way of man or some dream, but that they might set their hope in God. You realize that the purpose of us teaching our kids is to cause them to see that God is the answer for all their needs and that every promise he has made is yes and amen, that you can be assured that he will do what he said. In spite of all the language that people use to say, well, I don't know about that. You know, so-and-so tried that and it didn't work. In spite of all of that, when I come to the Lord and I leave all the yak out and all the talk out and just look squarely at God and his word, God doesn't say that. He just says yes and amen. If this is the influence in my life, my life now, if this is what is influencing me, then every need will be met in God because I can expect him to do what he said. If I cannot expect him to do what he said, then I will draw back and I'd be steadfast. I'll fold my arms and wonder why. And most people are like that. Not, well, a lot of people are like that. And so we're not really steadfast. We can be thrown off course pretty easy. Just a little doubt talk here, a little leaven there. Next thing you know, you don't know what you believe anymore. It's that age we're in. But the generation that we're raising up in that age shouldn't be like that. And he said... Again, in verse 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's our duty, and that's our job, folks, all of us, us and our children, to keep his commandments. This is what we're called to do. We can't keep them if we don't know them. We can't teach our children what they are if we don't know what they are. But as we learn, we do. And as we learn, we teach. And as we teach, we demonstrate. And consequently, our kids focus on us. 
and they know that something is very important to what we're doing here today because they see it acted out in our parents. And these kids begin to turn to God. They begin to listen to the same God you listen to. They begin to realize some of the things you're realizing, that without God, we don't have anything. But he said in verse 8, this is our problem. Maybe not our problem here, but this is a problem that exists in the church. He said that they be not like their fathers because he's talking about children here, a generation that is going to be judged. And they're going to be judged because of the fact that their fathers never taught them. He said, I don't want you to be like your fathers. How does he describe them? A stubborn and rebellious. Stubborn. What a word for our age, stubborn. Rebellious, whoa. A stubborn and rebellious generation. And here's how he describes it. A generation, he said, that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Now, when their heart was not right, verse 37, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. The very thing that God gave his people said, this is the way, walk ye in it. I don't care who says it won't work, it can't work. I don't care what anybody says. You're going to hear it. God will allow you to hear it. All the opposition but when God said, this is the way walk ye in it, just do that with a commitment. Because to me, when I think of steadfast, I think of commitment. If you're steadfastly walking with the Lord, you're committed to him. But these people didn't. And the reason judgment came on God's people and the reason that judge will begin at the house of God is most likely because of verse 8. A stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart was not right with God and whose spirit, the real inside man, the person that expresses you, was not steadfast with God. There were some things about God they really listened to, they liked. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 I like that. Then there's those cross messages, those enduring and overcoming messages some of those things that are just demanding on you. They demand your time. They command your will. They command your attention. They command your life. They command a change. And we just can't make up our mind. We could, but we just don't know if we want to go that far. And consequently, as we waver backwards and don't go forward, our heart, he says, is not steadfast with the Lord. See, again, being steadfast is like being committed. I'm in. I don't want out. I realize now through the convictions I've had, the tweaking of my heart by the Lord, that there's no other way through life but God. I can gain the world. I mentioned great people that have gained the world, but one thing they must dread is death because they have nothing to stand before God with. They were good guys, good people, lived all this stuff in the world, but when it was over, there was nothing of God in their life. They had, as he goes on to say, they had forgotten all the things they heard because the things they heard made too much of a demand on their life. They couldn't be who they wanted to be and be like that. So the choice they made was, I want to be me. 
boy, you know the day of death is coming. You can't live forever. And when the day comes, when it's coming, you think, oh, boy, what will I do? Well, sometimes it's too late to do anything. See, your commitment to God is not attendance. It may include attendance. Your commitment to God may not be just membership in some church somewhere. A lot of us rely on that. A lot of Christians do. Well, I go to church, I give money, and I've been there for 30 years. You're committed to a system, a religious system, which is easy to fit into. That's easy. All you have to do is go. Not much is required of you. Just go. Nobody wants to judge you so you can get by with about whatever you want to, but just go. And a lot of those people that are committed to a membership, they go to the church. I've been a Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal my whole life. I, you know, I point to all the, but they fall away, don't they? Aren't they often unsteadfast? Don't they in a time of turmoil often give up and quit? And I've seen it all my life. They sure do. They back off. But when you're committed and you made that decision to be resolute or steadfast and your grip on the plow, a good illustration of being steadfast, you put it there with purpose. That is having thought of the consequences before me, the difficult way and the consequences of looking back, of losing the way. I've decided to endure whatever I got to endure, knowing that God will never let it be bigger than me, and I'm going to stay with it. I'm going to be different. I know that. I'm going to have persecution. I know that. I know that things are going to change. But what was it Paul wrote to Timothy? He said, for now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 2. You know, First Thessalonians 3 and verse 8, he said, For now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. Is Paul perhaps saying that if we're not standing fast in the Lord, we're not living the way he wants us to live? Oh, you're living. I mean, you're busy, no doubt, but in the Lord. Remember what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church? He said, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand. Does that mean then that people that are not equipped with the armor of God won't stand? Well, then if you don't stand, what do you do? Then if you fall, you're not steadfast. I mean, this is the way you, you can reason with this. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or having done all, Stand, that's all you got. But you can't stand unless you've got this whole armor of God, unless there is a spiritual equipping in your life, additions to your life, things that God has added to your life, implements of of warfare, your defense equipment too, the way you resist the devil. There's a shield that quenches all the fiery darts of the devil. It's called the shield of faith. What do you do without that? What do people in the church do without a shield of faith? They quench no fiery dart. The fiery darts find their mark. They make us disillusioned. We begin to question God. We begin to wonder about all of this. We're not too sure anymore because of these darts. But the shield of faith is what quenches them. 
Oh, they hit. They land. They're fired. You can be sure. Pop, 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 pop. They're coming. But God has a weapon against it. Then there's a sword of the Spirit. It's an offensive weapon. It's what you fight back with. It's the words. Jesus said, it is written. You remember that when the devil tempted Jesus? Jesus said, it is written. It is written. It is written. He didn't run. He just stood his ground and used against the devil what God gave him and trusted in those words. That's what you do with the sword. How would you stand without a sword? Or the breastplate, the breastplate of what's right. If in your heart you don't want to do the right thing all the time, how do you stand? Because wrong things are a way you fall. You can't stand against the wiles of the devil unless you equip yourself with what God gives you. That's why we're here. That's what you teach your children. You can't do that. You can't act that way. You can't go there. You can't wear that. Why? Because. Not because I said so. That may work when you need to. But because God holds us responsible to represent him in an unclean society in a clean way. We are to live on a level above. That will get us persecuted. But it will also save us. Because if you don't want to live on God's terms, you will definitely fall. You will stagger. You will stumble. That will be your testimony but you will not stand. And trust me with this, everybody in this room loves to talk about and admires that person who just stands. They're not perfect people. You know that. They're not always <laughs> saying something that's always right or doing it. But you know what? When it comes to God and living the life, they will not be moved off course. There's something in a heart that God does that makes the heart right. Put on the whole armor of God. Girt your loins. Put on your breastplate. Put that helmet of salvation on. Be secure in what you believe and who you are, knowing that you're saved. Put on your shoes of the gospel of peace. I didn't write this. Paul wrote this. He said, this is how we stand. This is what keeps us from staggering and stumbling through life is that God is showing us what to do. He's given us the right way to think. Come on, Dad, do that. And then when your kid asks you, why are we doing this? Tell them why. Tell them why. It's because what God said. And if I do what God said, he's going to bless my family. He's going to bless my children. He's going to bless everything I put my hands to. He's going to bless me as I go out. He's going to bless me as I come in. Isn't he? Amen. I'm not doing it for that. I'm just doing it because it pleases God for us to live in a certain way. And because we please God that way, it pleases God to give us his kingdom. And all the while you're enjoying your walk with God and your, well, your hope, your expectancy is from God. Next thing you know, you're steadfast. Even your kid looks up to you and he says, you know, I want what you got. 
I remember my athletic director, last year I coached school basketball. I was cleaning out my office, and the uh, athletic director's first name was Louie. And I was cleaning up, and I said, well, I've enjoyed it being here. And we were shaking hands, getting ready to go. And he said, well, Hamilton, I'll tell you one thing. I'll say one thing about you. All right, Louie. He said, if I ever get religion, I want to get it the way you got it. Now, time out. Why then didn't he get it? Now, maybe he has, but now I don't know. I hope so. Because he didn't want it. A stubborn and rebellious generation. He knew, listen, he knew I was right. He knew when it come to the end of life, that's where you want to be. But he didn't want to get there. And how the devil has cheated people out of eternity, but just making this world more glamorous than heaven. Oh, but he says, if I ever get religion, I want to get it the way you got it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 for just a moment, and we'll get started on our message. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. He said, Therefore, my beloved in Shelbyville, Kentucky, be steadfast, be resolute, be fixed, be firm, be committed to an unwavering, dedicated life of serving God. Be steadfast. Notice these words he uses. Be steadfast. Unmovable, the word means a chair. You sit in it, it stays where you sit it, where it should be anyway. Be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The things you're doing in response to God, your labor, the things you really have to work at, this is not in vain. Somebody is keeping records this morning about every one of us. There are books that contain our lives, probably the hairs of our head if we have any left, but knew them when we did have hair. Everything about us is known to God. Every thought, every intent of our heart, all the things that we have chosen, all the things we have rejected, everything is known to God. Go back to something I said several weeks ago. Isn't it good to know that God is able to make you come around to see things his way? God can take the weakest soul in this room. God can take the most indifferent soul in this room. The most lazy. And he can take whoever he wants to and just take a moment to divinely breathe upon that person or touch that person or blink his eyes in that person's direction, all of a sudden that whole person's life changes. Everything becomes new because of the influence of God. God can do that to anybody, and when he does that, we call it grace, and that grace like that leads to salvation, not because you earned it, but because God gave it. And it's to save people that I'm talking about, the ones to make a decision to be steadfast. Now, concerning steadfastness, what is the evidence or the consequence 
of not being steadfast. How can we tell if a person is not being steadfast? Go back to Psalm 78. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Psalm 78. The first one is a lack of faith. Faithlessness. Doubting. This is one of the consequences of not being steadfast. Because remember he said a while ago, as I was reading it in verse 8, their heart was not right with God, nor were they steadfast with God. Or as verse 37 said, in his covenant. Now, here's what he says, though, about one of the effects of not being steadfast. This is their testimony, beginning in verse 19. He said, Yea, they spoke against God, and they said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? You see, they were hungry. Can God furnish a table out here in a desert? I mean, look around. There's no grass growing out here. We don't even know what our cattle are going to eat. We got thousands and thousands of cows we got from Egypt. We're in a desert. There's no rivers. We don't. Can God feed this many people and take care of all this kind of stuff in a desert? He led us out here in some wilderness. We had it made in the shade back in Egypt. We had leeks and garlics and all of that stuff. And now we're out here in a blazing hot desert with, well, we do have a little bit of a cap over us. Can he feed us? Can God feed us? Can God take care of your little home? You and your two or three children. Can he take care of you? Well, that's one of the questions. Verse 20, behold, he struck the rock and waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? How many of you know that it's easy to devalue God? When your flesh is ruling in your life, and you're not real strong in the Lord, you lean to the flesh. And when you lean to the flesh, you question God. Can he? Why doesn't it? How come? Well, how much longer? Therefore, verse 21, when God heard his people talk like that, they obviously did not know what they should have known. They did not benefit from their history or the great works of God in their past. They just came out there and started whining and complaining and questioning God. Therefore, verse 21, when the Lord heard this, he was angry. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel because God did not like them anymore. Why does it say God was angry? Look at verse 22. It's in everybody's Bible. Why was God angry with his people? Because of what? They did not believe. And again, to go back to verse 8, they did not believe because they were not steadfast. You cannot be a believer without being steadfast. I mean, they go together. 
It's like the word confidence. You, you couldn't have faith without confidence, and confidence and believing go with steadfastness. We'll look at that in a minute. But he said, because they believed not God, nor trusted in his salvation. And then he gives them the history. Look at all the things that God had done. Look at all the miracles they worked to get them out there and all the ways that he took care of his people. And how dare you come to a time in your life when you question what God is willing to do, having, well, you don't know it, obviously, having known what he has already done. Just like the time they came to Jesus. Remember, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And the disciples reasoned among themselves. They said, well, because we, we have no bread, leaven, you know, bread. We have no bread. Now he's mad. You know what Jesus said? He said, why do you reason amongst yourselves because you have no bread? Are you all that dense, he said? No, he didn't say that word. He said, do you not remember? Do you not remember those 5,000? Do you not remember the 4,000? How many basketfuls? We start out with this, and we wound up with tubs of food from a little sack lunch, a little mini meal down at Mickey's, and now we got tubs of food. Don't you remember that just not long ago? Didn't I just do that? Jesus looked at his disciples. Don't you remember? Then he added these words in Mark's account. Is your heart hardened? Is your heart not right with God? Are you like the world that's following miracles and following signs and wonders and new personalities and new movements? Woo! Don't you pay attention to the truth? Didn't you learn anything from watching him feed all those people? Shouldn't something have come into your heart that says, there's no problem with God with taking care of us if we need a miracle? I mean, anybody that could take a sack lunch, a kitty meal, well, maybe a kitty meal with a little extra, and feed 5,000 men besides their women and children, maybe 15,000. Yeah. The hillside was full of people. And how would we sit around and wonder how we're going to do this or how we're going to do that? You just read in a publication this week about the greatest danger our country's leaders, they don't talk about it, have. It's called electromagnetic pulse in which oh, a nuclear device 100 miles above the earth could set off some kind of interference with the electric grid and shut down all electricity. I told my wife, I said, this country that I'm living in would lose the rest of its mind. <laughs> they would lose their mind. No electricity, you couldn't pump gas, you couldn't operate a computer, all the systems, the financial, everything is shut down, the, the, the planes will crash, they can't take off, cars will stop running, they're computer driven. You're gonna have to go back to cooking on a wood stove, get you a stick of wood and put it in the stove. And think of all the difficulties that people would be facing. It's just like Jesus walks up to us in those days and he said, do you think I can take care of you? I caused uh, quail to fall from heaven. Your backyard had all the food you needed. All you had to do was go out there and get it every morning. 
I run you a big fat rabbit across there. All you got to do is skin it and clean it and cook it. And we don't have electricity. How are we going to cook it? On the wood stove. <laughs> Sitting out back, you know, like we do when we go hunting. Run a stick through it and turn it like that. God will take care of us, won't he? Amen. That's right. See, the problem is when you're not steadfast, that kind of news bothers you. It kind of throws you off course. Oh, what would we do when we couldn't have lights for church? What we do, we just do what we've learned to do. We trust the Lord with all of our heart, and uh, that's it. Lean not to your own understanding. In all of our ways, we acknowledge him. We look to God. God, you promised. God, you said. We put him in remembrance. That's what faith does. If we don't have faith now, I guarantee you, you won't have it then. But we'll give you some of our addresses so we can feed you all. No, I don't mean it like that. I'm just saying that God is teaching us right now for 30 years how to trust him. 30 plus years, how to trust God. Reasons to trust God. Reasons why God is so reliable and can be trusted. He's faithful. Teach that. We want everybody to walk by faith and not by sight. How else can we please God? We can't please God by wandering and getting all torn. That's not how we please God. It's faith that makes us steadfast and secure and sure. And the very thing that they lacked, the very thing that they lacked, like he said, they believed not in God nor trusted him in his salvation. That's what he did. Look across the page. Verse 37, their heart wasn't right with him. Their heart wasn't right with him, but that brings me to the second thing. A second flaw and a fundamental flaw of not being steadfast is that we, and whoever is not steadfast, becomes a hypocrite. Oh, I know you hate hypocrisy. We all should. God does. But the picture you're getting shown in Psalm 78 about a people who were stubborn and rebellious and didn't want to do it God's way and they weren't steadfast in their way, this is the picture we see of what happens to them. Verse 34, when he slew them, then they sought him. They always do. When terrible things happen, we all turn to God. And they returned and inquired early after God. And verse 35, then they remembered that God was a rock. It was in there. They just didn't want to do it. They remembered then that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. Praise God, now is got some relief. However, as is so often true, verse 36 says, Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. Do Christians ever do that? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. He's all I need. Do we ever do that? Is he all you need? That's what I'm singing. Yeah, I know what you're singing, but is that what you believe? Well, that's what I'm singing. I'll go through, precious Jesus. I'll go through. Every moment by thy power, I'll go through. Will you? Will you? Peter said to Jesus, I'll tell you what, these all may forsake you, but Brother Pete won't. 
Jesus looked at him and smiled. He said, you know what? Three times you will deny me before the rooster crows. <laughs> no, not me. Uh-uh, not me. And he did. Peter wasn't steadfast. Not then. He followed afar off to, to see what the end would be, Matthew writes. He didn't want to be identified with, with the power of God anymore because he now was not sure about who he is and what he's doing. Even though Peter said, thou art the Christ. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't show you that. My father showed you that. Peter heard that. He knew that. He saw that. And there's Peter, you know, seeing what the end will be. He was afraid of what would happen if he got involved because he wasn't steadfast. He wasn't sure about what he believed. I mean, he was aware of what he had seen and all the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus had performed. But when it came right down to something different than he had figured out, I ain't too sure about this. So he kind of wavered and kind of backed off there. And then he said, you know, the one who followed him so close. And that girl said, you're one of them, aren't you? I'm not with him. We'd say, you hypocrite. That happens to you when you back off. That happens to you when you're not steadfast. You begin to deny the Lord who bought you because you're trying to save your hide and gain admiration from somewhere else. But boy, when you're around the religious crowd, hallelujah, you hypocrite. Hypocrisy is a terrible, terrible thing. But he said in verse 37, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. That's why they were hypocrites. That's why they flattered God. Put your finger here and go over a couple books to the right. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Listen to what he said. This is so true in any generation. 29 verse 13 he said, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth... They're saying the right things. And with their lips, they do honor me. Well, isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't you agree with me that it's a good thing to have the word of God and good things in your mouth about God to speak that way? But listen to me. What good is any of it if it doesn't come from your heart in sincerity? What good is anything any of us are doing in this room this morning if we're not sincere? What I'm doing, if I'm not sincere in what I'm doing, what good is it? It won't benefit you. And if you're listening to all this, but you don't, don't you know, then what good is it? Notice he said, he said, they draw near with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but they have removed their hearts far from me and their reverence for me is man-made, taught by men. It's a religious system. You're just a good Christian church, good Baptist, good Methodist, good whatever you were. But as far as a sincere relationship with God, all that can change in a moment. Just one difficulty in the world, one invasion from some other country, and all of a sudden everything changes. You say, where's God? What about all them things we've been taught all before all of this? Well, well, they're not steadfast. But see, that's got to be in your heart. This is where we have to be who we are before God in our heart. 
and concerning hypocrisy. Remember Titus wrote, he said they profess to know God. Remember that, Titus 1.16? These people profess to know God. He said they profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and reprobate unto every good work. I know the word hate is, a, is an ugly word, and we used it the other day, but I think God hates hypocrisy. When the Bible says the hope, the expectancy of the hypocrite shall perish, he has no hope. Hypocrisy is play acting. It's pretending. Pretending you're somebody you're not. Acting like you're something that you're not. It's giving the appearance of being something that on the inside you're not. You act like a loving and caring soul, and then you look at your watch because you want out of here. You act like you care about somebody where inside you think, man, you really don't care. When you preach, you act like when you preach that you really mean this, and then really you're just preaching. It's hypocrisy. Somebody once said, well, the reason I don't go to church is just full of hypocrites. There's room for one more. <laughs> and I don't care if everybody in this room was currently a hypocrite, a card-carrying hypocrite. We can all be delivered from it. Every one of us. Just make a determination that, you know, you're going to be honest. You're going to be what God wants you to be, you're not going to play any more games. If you don't know the answer, you're not going to try to give one. If somebody asked, I don't know. I'm not going to act like I know everything when I don't. Listen, the Bible says the time will come. Paul wrote in Timothy, he said, the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. But he says, after their own lust... They want to be religious. I mean, the system is bigger than life, the religious system. But after their own lust, they will heap to themselves teachers. They will find somebody who says it the way they want to hear it. And their ears will itch to hear, not the truth, but as he goes on to say, man's fables, made up stories of man. Or if they said in Isaiah, prophesy to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Quit talking about God so much. And people like that come to the end of their life and they vanish. They fall apart. Hearts fail them, whatever. When trouble comes in the last days, when you no longer have any luxuries, when the rich man can do no more than the poor man, the, the rich man can't cook what he's got in his house, neither me anymore than a poor man. We're all even in the last days. All God has to do is pull a plug, and this world will go crazy. But the Bible says it will. Fathers will turn against kids, kids against fathers. All kinds of thises and thats in the world is in chaos. Nobody, you can believe hardly anybody. And Jesus will have to come or this world would, it would just blow up. But hypocrisy is somebody that has a form of godliness, but on purpose denies the power of it. 
well, we Baptists don't believe in tongues, so we're not going to that Holy Ghost stuff. You're not. Well, what are you going to do? Well, we, we, we believe it. You know, we, we believe that you're born again and baptized in water and you're going to heaven. Well, Jesus said those that believe will speak in new tongues. Am I supposed to say that? Uh, if you believe, you don't just believe one. Uh oh, believing's over. You got baptized or, you, or dry off. You're done. Rest of your life. You're no more believing. Nothing else can. Who told you that? If somebody doesn't teach you what you're supposed to believe, you will fall apart in about a year's time. When things quit going your way, when you no longer can figure out tomorrow and your routines all cease, what will you do? Jeremiah said, what will you do when the Jordan swells and the water overflows the banks and the wild animals that are hiding in the banks, the lions, they run into the city and you can't cope with lions. What will you do? He said, if you run with the footmen and they have wearied you, what will you do when you have to fight that? When they're shooting at you, what do you do? Will you say, where's God? Tell you one thing, he's gone nowhere. He's still where he was, where he is and where he's going to be. Will we fall apart? Will we revert back to an old way? What will we do? Will you be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord or another kind of work? What will your children do? What will your kids do? What will they do? Another terrible thing that happens, and we'll come to a close, another terrible thing that happens when you're not steadfast in your life is that you open up to and become involved in some form of error, falsehood. Because if God is not the reason you're living, then what's going to be your reason? If God is not the focus of your life, then something is because you're living for something. Error. Would you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17? Let's read it carefully. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. Therefore, beloved... Seeing you know these things before. Now stop, one moment. How would we know that? How would we know any such thing he's going to tell us? Isn't it because somebody has taught us? Either in the church or our fathers or our mothers, you know what I mean, parents. Well, he is talking to people that have been taught. Doesn't mean they're incapable of making a wrong decision or cutting a run or dropping all this and leaving. I've seen that. But he says, to you who know, to you who have been taught, to you who have acknowledged the truth in your life. He said, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, do what? Fall from your own steadfastness. Well, let me ask you a question. Can a steadfast person... Is it possible for them to fall? It is. 
You have to remain steadfast. You have to hold on. You that stand, take heed what? Lest you fall. There is no time you can say, well, I'll rest on yesterday's laurels. Today is another day. It has a new set of problems, a new set of temptations, a new set of influences, a new set of circumstances. Every day is new. You got through yesterday, you're in intact, good. Now, you got to go through this one too. You just have to go one day at a time. And you have to hold fast because if you don't, if you allow yourself to get distracted in some way and you get knocked off course, then you're no longer steadfast. You can get back up, of course. But I'm just going with what he said here. He said, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also being led away with the error of the wicked. Somebody's teaching us something else. Fall from your own steadfastness. Who would teach us error? I believe there is honest error. We didn't know it was wrong. How many times in my life have I relearned some things? Oh, oops. Oops, I've been saying that. I've realized now that wasn't right. That's honest error. But then there's also error that comes forth from people who know it's wrong. You know, it's no big deal. I know it's not right, but come on. And people like that. And when they believe that, he said, they fall from their own steadfastness. Wow. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This verse I remember. It's a part of my testimony in my life when God was leading me early in my life, in my Christian life. I had my arms folded like this. My head was down. My forehead was on my arms on a Thompson Chain Reference Bible that the kids at Charlestown High School had given me. They'd all signed it. And I was leaning my head down on that one night, or late at night, early in the morning. Turned off a little red lamp on top of this roll-top desk on 230 Millview Avenue in Sellersburg, Indiana. Living room facing west. And I was sitting there discouraged. <coughs> I'd spoken a Baptist rally that night and I couldn't make a couple of key points because I stuttered and I couldn't get the words to come out and a couple of kids snickered. They snickered in class, I'd have whopped them, but <laughs> snickered, you know, and I felt so inferior, unfit, and, and disgusted with myself. Why such a flawed human being would God ever expose me like that and put me out in front? Get somebody else. And I remember, I think I was in tears. I was really upset. See, I wanted to do well. I enjoyed something about God in those days that I never wanted to get away from, but when I couldn't do what he wanted me to do in a perfect way, it, just, it was just disturbing. It's just disturbing. As I was there crying about this thing and Why me, God, and how come I can't stop stuttering? And will you ever, don't you know, you made my mouth, can't you fix it? You know, I know Socrates put rocks in his mouth, but I'm not about to go preach with a bunch of rocks in my mouth. So I said, Socrates stuttered. He filled his mouth full of rocks. He stuttered more. I wouldn't think so. (laughs) 
I was going through the very things some of you go through when you're talking about why things aren't working in your family or your life. Been there. And I remember down there praying this as simply as this, not a voice, but a very strong, in those days it was a lot stronger than it seems to be now, but it's a very strong inspiration in my heart. Open your Bible and point to a verse. No, I'm not doing that. I've heard people point to, you know, get your house in order, you're going to die. I don't want that. <laughs> but I did. And I said, Lord, if there's only once in my life I get to do this, that's what I said. I want to open my Bible and put my finger on a verse and I want you to speak to me. If it's just once, do it. I ask you in Jesus' name. And I did. Open my Bible. And I pointed to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4. It said, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, Verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with you with excellency of speech or of wisdom. Nobody was impressed with my speech. Nobody would have been impressed with my ability to talk. I didn't have much of that. I didn't then. I still don't myself. Some people do. But I didn't have it. Verse 2, he said, For I determined not to know anything among you here except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Folks, that's a bad confession. That's a bad confession. Paul said, I'm telling you who I am. I was with you in fear and in trembling and in the human weakness that you know so well. That's me. And he says, in my speech and my preaching was not very flattering, was not very lofty. Nobody said, wow, this guy can, he's smooth. Nobody said that about Brother Paul and his buddy, Brother Tom. Nobody I talked to that night said, man, that guy's he's good. And I'd try to say, be all you can be. Somebody think you're trying to start a motor or something. You know. Couldn't get the words to come out. Certain letters wouldn't, just wouldn't come out. See, when you stutter, you know that before you get to the word. And you start dreading the next sentence. I remember one time I was asked to read a section of scripture at a big Tennessee, Georgia camp. There were a thousand people there, and they wanted me to read the scripture for the evening message. And one of these big shots, Derek Prince, I think, was going to speak or somebody, and they'd asked me to read the scripture. And so I read it first, and I thought, oh, there's no possible, no possible way except God for me to say all that. So I'd get up there, and all these people are so excited, the air's full. And here's Brother Tom going, and I, brethren, cannot come to you in excellency of each or wisdom. And people go, what? 
Somebody would say he's from Kentucky. <laughs> I told him no, I wouldn't do it because I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to go through all that. Even though God has said, I'll give you words to speak, and it's not you that wins people, it's God who wins people. But you see, error is often the results of smooth, enticing words. It just has to be right because of the way he said it. I remember a man from Lebanon years ago. His name was Samuel Doctorian. Came to our church, not a smoother, not a smoother preacher anywhere in my life. I'd heard them all, all of them that were of note. I'd heard them all. Gone to a lot of their meetings just to sit in front of them. But this guy, never heard of him, but boy, he was, he was smooth. I think I went forward, you know, to rededicate or something. I didn't even believe in that, but I was up there because, wow. The power of words. The only reason we didn't hang on to it because that night he tried to seduce one of the ladies in our church. Told the preacher, and he said, I don't believe that because nobody can preach like that and do that. That's error. That's vulnerability, and boy, that kind of drove a wedge between us. But folks, let me close by saying this. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we have to be steadfast. We really do. We have to desire to be stable and resolute and secure in our Christian life. It doesn't happen overnight because, again, we all have our weaknesses and our flaws, but we can all be steadfast, every single one of us. And listen to this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, for we are all made partakers of Christ. If. Do you see the word if there in verse 14? We are all made partakers of Christ. If. If what? Because if, as I said last week, is a condition. You got to meet the condition to get the benefit. What is the benefit? Or what is the condition if? And what happens if we what? Hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What do we do with that? The word confidence in that verse is the same as the word a substance in the definition of faith. Hebrews 11, one faith is the substance of things hoped for. The word substance and the word confidence is the same thing. It means assurance, means guarantee. Faith is the substance. He said, if we hold fast the substance, if we hold fast the promise that God has made that he will do what he said, if we will hold fast to that, we will remain not only steadfast, but we will remain sure to the very end. Because when he says to the end, he means to the end. In the meantime, did you fail a test? Did you fall short last week, last month, last year, yesterday? Did you mess up? Do you feel like you're just not going anywhere? You're not making any progress at all. You can't stay on top. Are you beginning to wonder about this whole thing? Maybe you can't make it. Maybe it's just not for you. People say that. Maybe you're not saved. 
Maybe you only learn the system, learn the routine, but you don't have the reality. Maybe you're really not saved. Or maybe you prayed. You prayed for something to happen. It didn't happen. We prayed for somebody's condition to go away, and it didn't go away. We prayed for somebody's healing, and they're not healed yet. We prayed for the money to come in. It didn't come in. We prayed for something, and it hadn't happened. And now you begin to wonder, you know what's happening? Your confidence, your assurance, your guarantee of what God, that's beginning to be questioned, isn't it? But why wouldn't the devil do that? Why wouldn't God allow that on occasion? Because once you know you're a believer and you're willing to hold fast, even though you're tossed in this way and that way, but you're going to hold on and the winds are blowing, but your house is in the rock, the devil has to let go, doesn't he? Yeah. And then something deeper is rooted in your heart because you become rooted and grounded and something sure and certain begins to get laws in your heart. You're the one that's going to have a good testimony. You're the one that people are going to knock on your door. I need to talk to you. Why me? Because I've watched your life. You're the real deal. Steadfast. Be ye steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Is that you? Is it? Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless all of us here today with a deepening of your word and your commitment to us that our assurance and our confidence may become greater and greater. That we will never back off, turn away, or fail. That we will let nobody talk us out of the truth. We will measure words by words. And when the end comes, Lord, you'll find us waiting and watching. In the meantime, Lord, there's a troubled road ahead for a lot of people. There's difficulty facing us all. I pray in the name of Jesus that it will not overwhelm, overcome, or defeat anybody in this room, anybody watching, anybody listening. May your grace have a greater measure, a greater influence in our life. In these days ahead, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.